and welcome to episode 211. I think I got that right of the actual astronomy podcast. I'm Chris and joining me is Shane. We are amateur astronomers who love looking out the nighttime sky in this podcast. For anyone else who likes going out under the stars. I think Don pointed out that I may have said episode 110 the first time. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. We'll have to listen to that. I didn't catch that. So, well, so. We, we couldn't figure out whether it was, it was maybe I had Messi on the brain or he did. And uh, yeah, but I, I very well could have. And, and I was saying I, I've had a bit of a nasal infection uh, this week and uh, my nose was kind of plugged up. So it may, it may have sounded like 110. I, I, I was looking at it when I read it, but I, I certainly have messed up the show numbering a few times anyway. <laughs> well, when, when we've done it over 200 times, you know, you're going to make the odd mistake. It happens. So, but I tell you, that was a great conversation with Don. So, you know, as every, I think most of our listeners know, we, we record both of these episodes back to back. One comes yeah. out Monday, one comes out Thursday. Yeah. Um, you know, the, it, I'm on such a high after talking to Don, oh. such a great conversation. Uh, what I just said to you like two minutes ago, just before we pressed record is I would love to move down to where Don lives and just hang out and go for coffee a couple times a week with him because uh, the conversation is just so fun. Yeah, it's just so like all, you know, the, these uh, these folks that have been doing this for so long, they're, they're just such fascinating people, you know, and and all the all the stories that that aren't even in like none of the like half of that stuff wasn't even in the show notes or anything that we made up. And that's all the gold you know, the stuff about, you know, making his own eyepiece and the custom-made, uh, you know, Coulter Optics 10-inch, um, all that kind of stuff. I just love hearing that stuff because that's kind of where amateur astronomy lives, right? It's it's getting things customized to do what you want it to do. In his case, hunting comets and getting really wide fields of view, which uh, I love really wide field telescopes and observing. And, um, you know, he's doing it for different slightly different purpose than I am. Uh, but I just love that kind of observing and, and that kind of conversation. It's just so much fun to, uh, to sit and, and listen to. And there were some pretty big pauses, I think after you stopped talking, cause we're just like listening and then we're like, Oh, we have to say something. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and, and comet discovery is something that I've always been interested in. And, and I mentioned real briefly on that episode with Dawn that, uh, I've done some limited reading on it. There's, there's, mm-hmm. Like when I've researched, like, how do you discover a comet visually? There's really not a lot out there, you know, on the internet. Um, I think because A, there's not a lot of people doing it and and B, I just don't know if they've posted or or if there's been a lot of discussion around it. So being able to find out from, you know, I I would say probably the most successful current, uh, current day comet discoverer, visual comet discoverer. Um, it, it was just such a, a privilege and a, a thrill to be able to listen to Don tell us about how he's done it, uh, throughout his entire life. Yeah. Just, uh, yeah. Super, super neat. Uh, really nice guy, really friendly person. And, uh, you know, when he, he does a lot for the amateur astronomy community, I, I thought yeah, he was, he you know, I, I kind of wanted to plumb that a bit more, but, uh, he's, he's pretty humble about it, but, you know, he's done so many talks and so many different clubs and, um, you know, I, I, I had reached out to him, you know, originally, you know, whenever it was uh, 10, 10 or 11 years ago, whenever it was, and uh, he was so quick to respond and so generous in his, his time and, uh, and putting up with the technological hiccups that we had back in those days, uh, w- which were certainly more than what we've had recently. And, uh, and then again, I thought, 
you know, he, he hadn't put out his, uh, his shingle as much recently, but I knew he was doing the podcast and I had reached out to him again and, and, uh, just so quick and gracious in, in, uh, in taking us up on our, our request to, to come on the show. And then, uh, you know, we did have a few challenges with, with the sound, I think all around. And then he was so nice to, uh, to offer Dean to, uh, to come on the show a second time and to chat. And I mean, as well, like, pfft, I think we got through about half the notes again. Like I, I like you said, mm-hmm. you could you could go and hang out and have a coffee um, with Don a, a few times a week and just do that, you know, infinitely. You know, and totally, you know, yeah. You know, like 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 that. That's the kind of person he is. Just to sit down and and uh, have a conversation. It's super cool. Yeah, you know, I I had like honestly, I had thought about ten, maybe fifteen minutes had passed, and I checked the timer, and it was we were already past thirty five minutes. I couldn't believe it. it; it went by far too fast. Oh yeah, yeah. It was a it was a wonderful conversation. Uh, if anybody listening right now has not listened to Don's podcast, looking up with Don, check it out. It's one of the best visual astronomy podcasts yeah. out there. Uh, yeah, just, there's no question. It's really really good. For sure. I mean, it's, it's very different than our podcast, just, you know, like uh, a lot of the other people that we've had on and collaborated with on episodes in the past. Um, it's kind of fascinating the the different approach that everybody takes, like, you know, in, I think, I think for us, this is what works well, but I know for Don in the previous episode, he talked about really preparing a lot of notes and uh, having more of a, like, like his, in, in some ways, like, it sounds like this, you know, it's very polished and you're going to, you're just going to get a different, um, you know, a different experience when you listen to his, his podcast, uh, than when you listen to ours and, uh, you know, I, you know, I love it. It's great to mm-hmm. listen to because, uh, it, it just is so different from what we do. So I think that people will, will enjoy that. You're not going to hear like the same type of thing. It's going to be from a different person with a completely different perspective. Um, and, and somebody who probably has more experience than both you and I combined. <laughs> oh yeah. It's not probably it's, it's 100% true. It's 100%. Yeah. I was thinking like, yeah, cause he was, he was talking about something there and I was like, yeah, I was, I think I was alive then, you know, kind of thing. Like I wasn't even in elementary school yet, I, but, but, you know, when, when he was doing some of this stuff um, anyway, yeah, it, good stuff. But uh, how was, how was your week? How was your observing week? Uh, pretty good. Um, I had two sessions actually. Uh, I know the notes that I, I quickly entered this morning says one observing session, but this morning I added a second one. So Ooh. yeah, yeah. It was, a uh, it was clear enough this morning for a brief period of time oh, that was I it? was able to get uh, the solar telescopes out. So, so both of my sessions were solar observing, ah. uh, this week. Um, Oh, I was going to say, I was really confused by that because how is that even possible? (laughs) Well, I got up yesterday and I observed a little bit because it was, it was clear enough. And then this morning I got up and I actually went out for a short walk because there was no astronomy happening, but uh, it was clearing off when, when I got back and the the sun was up, but uh, I was like, what are you talking about? Like it was clearing from your direction, but it wasn't going to be that clear, but yeah, you were looking at the, the one star. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so yesterday and today were solar observing sessions. Uh, I think Friday night we could have done some nighttime observing, but I was completely exhausted from my work week. Uh, it had taken a toll and I just uh, had no energy for uh, astronomy Friday night. But uh, Saturday and then this morning here, so that would be Sunday, um, just some great, great views of the sun again. Um, it is getting so active. So, you know, for anybody that has the, uh, the right filters or the right, like hydrogen alpha telescope to take a look at the sun, 
I hope you're doing that because there's a lot to see right now. If you don't have any of that stuff, um, I really recommend getting like a white light filter. Uh, they're fairly inexpensive, you know, compared to everything else in this hobby. Uh, and it will allow you to see the sunspots, uh, some granulation, um, and, and like the detail in and in and amongst the sunspots. And, um, so, uh, really I'll, I'll sum up both of my sessions cause, uh, into one, because they were both quite similar. Um, there's three different sunspot regions that I saw. Um, one is quite small and, and it's, it appeared that it was just like one sunspot, uh, by mm. itself. Um, and it was in the Northern hemisphere. Uh, there's a grouping of about, I think it was three or four spots. I, I, I think it might be classified as one. Yeah, region. I'm looking at them. Yeah, there's there's three. Yeah, I'm looking at 290, 2978-2981. Yeah. Yeah. Is that more around the equatorial? Yeah. 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 yeah I'm just looking at, at the uh, Space Weather Live right now. And in fact, Shane, I'm almost thinking you should leave and go look now because it looks like there's this big arc coming off on the limb. <laughs> it looks pretty good on the so images. Yeah, yeah. Well, so so the so there, then I'll, I'll just quickly finish up with the sunspots. Uh, Shane's morning. like running out the door. <laughs> yeah, I gotta go. I gotta go. <laughs> there's um there's another region of sunspots that was near. I guess it would be the uh, eastern limb, closer to the equatorial band. I guess. Yeah, I like think this must be the one. Yeah. Yeah. So anyway, some cool sunspots to take a look at. Uh, switching over to the hydrogen alpha views. Um, again, there's, there's probably about three or four, maybe five filaments. So these are the dark lines on the surface of the sun. What's interesting about those. And I, I probably should have mentioned this last week when I was giving my, uh, solar observing report, the filament. So uh, along the limb or the edge of the sun, there's prominences that, you know, are, are like, you know, the sun's ejecting matter or they're very dynamic. A filament is a prominence, but it's just, you're looking kind of at the top of it. Um, so it's just a, another interesting, uh, observation of the sun or, or features on the sun. So lots of filaments, uh, were visible, uh, again, multiple, uh, ejection prominences along the limb, although most of them were quite small and, um, not full of a, a ton of detail, but there is one this morning that was on the South. That was like, uh, it was almost like you know, two, two bands of ejection that were sort of twisting together. Um, it looked phenomenal and it was quite large. I assume that's probably what you're seeing on the sofa. Yeah. That's, I think that sounds like it. Yeah. That must've been phenomenal to see. Yeah. It was really cool this morning. Um, so I definitely, so, you know, my practice usually on the weekends, Chris, is I leave, uh, the solar telescopes just out on the patio and they just sit there all day. And then as I'm doing things in and around the house, I'll just pop the caps off, have a quick look for five minutes or so, cap it back up, you know, go do some more stuff around the yard, come back in a half an hour, have another view. That's, that's how I like to do my solar observing. Um, now, if there's something that looks like it is evolving at a fairly fast rate, I will certainly sit down and spend as much time at the eyepiece as, uh, as I can to observe the evolution, but so, more, more often than not the solar, uh, the, um, you know, things to observe, mm -hmm. take a little more time to evolve. So it's kind of neat just to see it happen throughout the day with some sort of frequent check-ins. Um, so anyway, that's been my observing this week, uh, two really interesting, uh, solar sessions. Uh, you know, I plan on, 
doing a lot more of that uh, as our temperatures are improving. Um, and then just some other quick gear notes here, Chris. I, I, I purchased and received a 28 millimeter Takahashi Erfel. Um, it's a, it's a modern eyepiece. They've been making it for a little while, but it's one of the eyepieces that they just recently stopped producing. So, um, I've always been kind of intrigued by this eyepiece because it's a 60 degree eyepiece. It is exceptionally light. It's an inch and a quarter barrel, um, with a pretty good eye relief. Um, now the knock on it is that it, it's a little soft at the edges. So, you know, I want to, I want to play around with that and just see how it works for me. Um, but I'm always interested in, in like, you know, some lighter weight eyepiece options rather than like the 24 millimeter panoptic is amazing, but it is a little heavier and, uh, I'm curious to see how this performs. Um, yeah. and then, uh, the other thing is I finally ordered my, uh, Burlaback tripod and I settled on the uni 28, um, and I got the double clamps, uh, the tray, uh, yeah. with also the, uh, the, uh, spreader. Uh, that goes in there too. So that should arrive this week. I hope um, uh, at least all indications are pointing towards that. Nice. Yeah. So I'm excited for that. How, how was your week, Chris? Yeah. Well, I'm really excited for you to get the Burlaback uni. Um, I think that's the way to go. Um, you know, I had bought the, uh, Oh, what is it? I the know, report. Me, but I, I just bought the report. Yeah. yeah. Um, but I'll tell you, the report was a little bit lighter weight than what I had hoped. Now, it's still really good because I've got lots of small telescopes and having a really awesome uh, tripod with a tray to use with my small telescopes will uh, get lots of use. It's seen lots of use, so it definitely has a place. Um, but I, I think that at some point in the future, I'd also like to get the uh, the Uni 28 as well. So I'm really uh, curious to see uh, what that's like. I think that'll just about be a perfect tripod. I think so too. I was debating between the uni 18 and the uni 28. Uh, the only real difference is the uni 28 goes a little taller. Uh, it might also, yeah, it might also, uh, be a little longer when, uh, you know, completely compacted. I, I can't quite remember, but, um, I just, you know, the way you and I observe a little extra height is always appreciated. Um, so whether it's, uh, you know, some sessions we're standing, so you definitely want the height. Um, but even when you're sitting sometimes with longer tubes, uh, if it's a longer focal length telescope, having a little extra height yep. is nice as well. So, uh, I decided to just get the bigger one and, and yeah, I'm super excited to see how it will work. I, th I think it'll be awesome. Yeah. You're, you're a taller person anyway. I think that's a good, uh, that's a good idea. And kind of the thing that I'm really curious to see is, so when I ordered my report, it was way lighter and a, just a tiny bit smaller than I had thought. Oh, okay. Um, it would be, and that's fine because I, I was on the fence about what tripod to get. And I had thought about getting like a carbon fiber tripod or something like that, which, which would be great, but definitely much more expensive. But the, the neat thing about the report that I bought is that uh, it is so small and lightweight. I think it's maybe like a pound more than the uh, carbon fiber would have been anyway. And then I added a carbon fiber pier to mine. So I kind of, I, I think I ended up with the best of both worlds and 40 pound capacity and that sort of thing. So uh, it's good and stable uh, um, and decent enough with, with the hundred millimeter. But yeah, I, I think with your uni 20, and I think that's just going to be, that's going to be a great setup with, uh, with your mounts and, and what you have excited to see that. Yeah, I think it'll handle 
the four inch Teleview Genesis SDF quite well, which is a fairly heavy four yep. inch. And then my 120 Skywatcher ED, which is uh, much longer. Yep. Uh, again, I don't think there'll be any issue on that uh, tripod. Yeah, I so think, I, I, it'll be great for me. Yeah, I think that's going to be going to be great. Uh, yeah, I did get out yesterday morning, took, just took a look with the binoculars at uh, Venus, uh, Saturn, and Mars. Um, I thought I kind of had hoped to get them all the same field of view, but they were spread out a little bit more than I thought. I was using okay. um, my binoculars that have a, a slightly smaller field of view. I think these binoculars have like maybe not quite a six degree field, but uh, anyway, so I had to pan around a little bit and and I did uh, I did see them. Yeah, it was kind of neat. Uh, Phil had been asking why I don't observe more in my yard. Um, my yard is horribly light polluted. And I've kind of got a, a tree plant in the past few years. And kind of things arranged in such a way that I do have uh, the darkest spot that I can get, but there's, there's a lot of lights around where I'm at, but um, that, that essentially almost eliminates any real deep sky observing. Um, but for planets, I, if a planet is up and it's, and it's going to be high enough to, to observe, I, I can get them uh, like even these planets at dawn. Um, I can see them even from inside my yard where I'm trying to block some of the brighter lights that are nearby. So, uh, but yeah, un- unless the planets are up and worth looking at, there's, there's no point in me setting up in the yard. Yeah. So. Yeah. That can be a little challenging. There's always double stars, my friend, but <laughs> just to, just to poke yeah, you a little bit. Yeah, that's fine. Yeah. It's not my, yeah, it's yeah. not how I, how I observe. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, as well. Like I, we had so much snow and ice that uh, only yesterday morning was the first time that you could walk into the yard. Um, yeah, yeah. You know, I, I still have two drifts that are about a meter deep. They just don't really interfere with with where I'm going now. Uh, you know, so I I can get in there and, and actually walk around. Um, yeah. So the other thing I was going to mention before we before I forget is I was talking with Alistair Ling about uh, unrelated uh, topics and. He mentioned this business with Comet 03 Pan Stars and okay. uh, looking forward to it putting on a show. He said that they're saying next month, but then he uh, he mentioned to me end of this month. So if people are looking for a Comet, uh, check out 03 Pan Stars in your oh, uh, yeah. software. And then um, Sky and Telescope has a good article on Comets to View in 2022. It's one of the ones they mention. And uh, the talk is maybe sixth magnitude by the end of this month when we get to that new moon period towards the end of the month. Uh, you know, sixth magnitude mm-hmm. comet would be pretty exciting because that's flirting with uh, naked eye visibility. Yeah. So I am uh, I'm on the Aerith.net website that we use uh, frequently for comet notifications or, or trying to get an understanding of bright comets. And it's listed here for May, uh, kind of the, looks like the start of May potentially. Um, what do we have? Yeah, 03 pan stars, magnitude five in the evening, um, maybe shifting to a magnitude seven at midnight and six in the morning. Hmm, interesting. So yeah, definitely bright. Wow, this is exciting. Yeah, yeah, it could, could be. I mean, comets are unpredictable and... Uh, yeah. You know, it's moving across uh, Perseus and Camelopardalus. So that is uh, is an area that, uh, you know, it's well-placed for us Northern Hemispheric observers. Yeah. So this is going to brighten very quickly by the looks of things. Uh, actually, so the magnitude, uh, the magnitude, it looks like that's probably around January, February, 
Yeah, it was quite dim. Nothing recent though on this website to uh, to indicate what it's at right now. But. Yeah, I think it's coming out of the sun's glow and it hits perihelion here towards the end of this month. So uh, Alistair's the person who does the what's up for astronomy magazine. And so when he's, when he's telling me to go take a look at something and it might not have made it into the the magazines or something as, as, as quick as maybe they would have liked, uh, I got to say, I'm going to go and try to take a peek at it. Yeah, absolutely. It's, and it's really nice that it's an evening comet. It, you know, it just, for, I think a lot of people, or at least for me, <laughs> it's, uh, it's just easier to, to get out in the evening than to wake up earlier in the morning. So uh, yep. I'm excited for that. Yeah. Yeah. So that's, uh, that's cool. Um, yeah. So I really didn't do that much. I, I had really hemmed and hawed about going out on Friday night. Um, yeah. I went out for a short walk and there was still quite a bit of wind. And, uh, it wasn't supposed to drop. And even in the morning, there was some wind and I don't know about setting up a telescope and it's pretty muddy. Um, we have to pull in out of my site. I I just think it needs, uh, needs a few days and any, anything around here is just going to be mud city for the next, uh, three or four weeks anyway. But, uh, my site's drying out. Um, there's a couple little drifts left. And I was even maybe debating going out there tonight, but uh, I'm going to definitely go out in the next week and, uh, and see how it's coming along. But, uh, but I think, yeah, next new moon out there will be totally good. Uh, as you know, it's, uh, it's a hill covered in cactus and cactus like to grow in soil that uh, drains well. Mm-hmm. And yeah, yeah, the, the next new moon will be good timing for this uh, 03 pans yeah. as well. So that that's all lining up pretty good for us. Yeah. Yeah, I think I'm going to take a week off there. Um, let's see. I, I received the Atlas of Deep Sky Splendors by Hans uh, Vernberg, um, which is uh, an older book, first published in the late 60s. My edition was from the mid or late 90s, um, which is probably about the last time it was, uh, it was printed. Um, this book was really popular with amateur astronomers. Did you, you ever see a copy of this uh, Atlas of Deep Sky Splendors by Varenberg? No, I've, I've never, no, I haven't. It, it's really interesting. Um, in some ways, good. In some ways, not as good. Um, so observing books um, are always really fun to get. And because there, there really isn't as many observing books being uh, produced anymore, um, you know, it's, it's fun to go back and, and grab one of these older ones. I remember back, this was when I was first getting into astronomy. And uh, this book was going out of publication then. Um, I looked at it at a large bookstore and didn't purchase it because the price was fairly high. Uh, and I, I just wasn't really sure about it. wasn't really sure how I would use it. And of course, now as time has gone by, I, I you know, uh, sort of become nostalgic for such things. But um, it, it's an interesting book because uh, his whole take was that he would image, uh, I think he was using uh, emulsion film or, or whatever um, in the late 60s, but he imaged at the same scale for everything. So it was meant to give you a sort of a consistent representation of this. Uh, I think there's like three, I might get this wrong. I want to say it's like 360 odd objects, but it could be like 160 odd objects. Seems 360 seems high. But anyway, it's, uh, it's around a couple hundred objects, plus or minus. And, uh, and then there's, of course, like there's center focused objects and there's other ones in the field, but the text itself is around 200 and a quarter pages long. Um, 
Yeah, it's it's interesting um, to go go through and look at those. They're really um, excellent photographs. Like he took a lot of time and care to to make them. Um, and then throughout, and this is kind of the part that's a bit idiosyncratic. Is that um, typically, you know, Shane, when you get an observing book, even if it's one like this, there's going to be those introductory chapters, right? And they might have some essays on a few different mm-hmm. things, right? You're, you're familiar mm-hmm. with this format. That's yeah, pretty yeah. common. Yep. So, so Vernberg didn't do that. What he did instead is he wrote these essays on, um, they're, they're interesting essays on like uh, Bernard Schmidt and the camera. And of course, he's using the Schmidt camera back in the, in the 60s or whenever to take these photos. And then um, he wrote an essay on Messier. I think he wrote a Messier on Lakai, wrote a Messier, uh, an, uh, an essay on um, satellite trails. And then I think there's maybe another essay that, that I'm forgetting, but he kind of spread them out throughout the book. And, you know, you'll have a piece of the essay on one page and it will say, you know, continued on page 214 or something to flip ahead a bunch of pages to get to it, you know? And so each, each one is like that and they, they, they progress. So like I sat down in uh, over the course of a couple of evenings and I read all the essays, you kind of have to flip through the whole book to read like that kind of introductory uh, material, which is kind of kind of a bit strange. Um, and then the other thing is on the left page, he would have the descriptions and sort of the remainder of these essays. And then on the right page, he would have like a little finder, some of the basic details of the object, and then this great big image. Um, all these images were were approximately the same, plus or minus to to a certain scale. But the the descriptions are all jammed in the bottom left of the page. I think to make room for those for those essays, um, so it's it's a little bit strange uh, h- how it kind of compares to to a modern text, but maybe it's just like those old uh, layouts. So yeah, kind mm-hmm. of a, a bit of an interesting thing. Uh, let's see. I got the Cosmic Butterflies by Sun Kwok, which is a book um, by he was a professor at at uh, the University of Calgary. I don't know if he still is or not. Um, and what it, this is, it's a book on planetary nebula, and it's based on a bunch of sky and telescope articles that he had authored. I believe that's that's how it came about. And it's kind of like a coffee table book. And when that book came out, I really, really wanted to get it, but it was too expensive. I couldn't afford it at the time. And I bought this one for $5. It's an old library book. Both of them are old library books. Um but it's just like new. Both of them are pretty much just like new. And uh, yeah, so it's kind of fun to, to flip through and read that stuff. And, um, you know, they're, they're reasonable images, um, you know, from a variety of different observatories and uh, some pretty good essays in there on planetary nebula and stellar evolution. So, yeah, that was kind of kind of neat. And the other thing that arrived, I bought the uh, Web Society Digital Archive. Oh, Okay, and, this is uh, interesting. It is it is super interesting. So something I hemmed and hawed over for a long time, and what this is is um, the Web Society is um, it's an astronomical society, mostly for visual observers. Though they do lots of CCD imaging as well, I guess um, some double star stuff. Um, you know, they they have members all over the world. Uh, from Mark Bratton is is a longtime member. I, I've known a few other people. I'm I'm not a member. Um, if you become a member, basically what you do is you get a copy of their uh, quarterly report every uh, four months, and then I think they have the Deep Sky Observer. Maybe they've combined the two now. I I can't recall, but 
um, what you can do is they, they have a variety of publications you can purchase. And I purchased their their archive from 2007 and earlier. So you have all these older articles and that. Um, and it's, yeah, it's really neat to kind of read through and see what's what's in there. Um, one of the things I was looking for, I've, I've been working on this list for uh, Kemble. And, um, and I think I, I had mentioned that I was looking, hoping to find one more object. And uh, the type of object I was looking for was a planetary nebula. And so I was hoping to find maybe this list that he had referenced in an email to uh, Alistair Ling that, that Alistair had forwarded to me. And uh, the, this uh, email had mentioned a list of 146 planetary nebulae that were in, uh, in, in a copy of, of, uh, of uh, you know, the 93 or nine, something like that uh, version of the, uh, this, this quarterly report by the Web Society. Anyway, so I dug that up and I found it. Um, that was kind of interesting. But then kind of as I flipped through, I kind of wanted to see like where this work had evolved. I actually found an article by Kemble about two planetary nebula, uh, Jones 1 and Jones uh, Embersome 1. And uh, uh, that, that latter one that I mentioned there is, is up in Lynx, which is at 53 degrees north latitude. So it met, it met his criteria. So I was able to kind of finally flush out uh, that list of 50 objects I was trying to get together. So that was pretty exciting. That is exciting. Um, what is the cost of the, the Web Society archive to purchase? Oh, yeah, I think it ended up costing me like 40 bucks or something. Oh, well, that's, that's fine. Canadian. Yeah. Canadian. Yeah, it's not too bad. Um, some of it is, I mean, some of it's pretty dated. The, so the other reason why I wanted to get it and, and, you know, kind of once I have a few reasons to get something, that's that's typically when I get it. So one of my favorite astronomy authors is uh, Ken Glenn Jones. He wrote a book on the messy objects back in the 60s or 70s or something. I didn't buy it. Uh, Randall, my friend, bought it for me and uh, mailed it to me. And it's just such a beautiful book. And he wrote much of what he wrote is, is, in, uh, is in these early uh, copies of, of the Web Society. And he was just a phenomenal observer and a really big supporter of visual observing in the world. He passed away a number of years ago. But anyway, I kind of wanted to have access to, to some of his early writings. And, uh, and then as well, I want to see what, what was in there of, of Kemble's, uh, not listed in the index, but uh, actually in, in one of those um, older editions as well. Uh, Kemble had this article on these planetary nebulae, so that was super exciting, so well worth getting it there. And then also, uh, I'm interested in observing planetary nebula and just kind of having this nice, concise list that turns out they really didn't do that much with. Um, I thought, ooh, that could be an interesting uh, project for the future. You know, <laughs> it was just, I just always love finding projects and maybe not even necessarily finishing projects. Maybe my project is just finding projects. I, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> Fair enough. So anyway, so, so that, that's kind of an exciting thing. So yeah, kind of... Uh, doing that kind of stuff. Uh, we had some emails here. Um, let's see. Uh, maybe I'll read the first one. You can read the second one. How's that sound? Yeah, sounds good. Yeah. Okay. So I had an email from Stan, uh, who's in Cape Breton, uh, which is a place near and dear to my heart, having grown up in, in Nova Scotia and living there most of my life before I moved out here. Um, he says, Hey guys, my name is Stan. I own the two rivers observatory located in the two rivers wildlife park in Cape Breton, which for those that know Cape Breton, it's on the St. Peter's side. 
And my observatory is open to the public from the long weekend in May to end of October, our regular camping season here as we are in a campground. He says, I love the show, just found them last week, and he's about three quarters of the way through them. Uh, And he says that in a lot of the episodes, we refer to observing lists and objects to find. Is there anything online to find these lists that you mentioned? Do you have any show notes uh, or is he going to have to go through and start keeping a list? Um, Yeah, he said, P.S. I heard you mention Astral Planner a few times and he was one of the original testers for the guy that made it. Yeah, yeah, Paul so, Rodman. Yeah, yeah, I love yeah, Astro Planner. It's, it's yeah, you're, really yeah, good you software. use it. I don't use it, so I was hoping you could comment on that. Yeah, I don't use it anymore, unfortunately. And the reason is I've kind of like I've ditched traditional computers for uh, tablets, and mm. um, that's my new way of operating. Mm. However, when I used to have uh, like I've had Windows uh, laptops as well as uh, Apple laptops. Uh, uh, Astro Planner works for both platforms, and there might even be a Linux version of it. I can't remember. Um, it's phenomenal. Uh, it's the best planning slash, uh, logging software that I've ever used. Um, Paul provides pretty much, I think every catalog that's ever existed. Um, and then mm-hmm. the community sort of contributes the community being the users contributes like observing lists. So there's a number of lists that you can download that, you know, link to the objects, right? So if you wanted say the finest NGCs, which is a RASC list, it's there. And then you download it, it you, know, you, you save it, and then you can also log all of your observations of the finest NGC. Um, so it, mm-hmm. um, you know, it has inventory of all of your gear. So it, you know, it really makes for uh, logging entry quite quick, quite easy. Um, and then the other thing that it does, like most good planning uh, programs will do is, you know, if you just want nebulas, you can, you can put in all of these parameters to build an observe, a customized observing list for what you want to look at based on your aperture or based on where you uh, want to look in the sky. Uh, it's very powerful. It's very uh, well-designed. It's stable. Uh, you know, there's nothing better out there if you're looking for like logging slash planning software. Sounds like some sort of commercial, like the bass 2000. We've got nebula. We've got clusters. We've got globular clusters. (laughs) We've got dark nebulas. We've got to move everything. We've got to get everything out of the sky. Okay, cool. All right. Uh, Yeah. And I also mentioned to him that um, several of the lists, like you you mentioned the uh, finest NGC list and some of these other things, uh, these are in the observer's handbook with the RASC and and uh, it's it's one of the books that uh, that I am a contributing author of, so uh, people can can pick that up from the RESC. And since he's in Cape Breton um, and, and in Canada, and any, anybody can join as an unattached member. I'm I'm an unattached member because I, I sort of contribute on the national side of things. You can uh, join as a national member, and uh, when you do join, you get a copy of this uh, every year because it is updated, and then you get. Um, Sky News, which is the Canadian monthly magazine, as well as our, uh, you know, what is a bi-monthly journal or whatever comes out. Um, so, yeah, you, you get quite a bit. And I thought he might benefit from having uh, those things, uh, particularly where, where he's running uh, an observatory in uh, in Cape Breton uh, here in Canada. So, yeah, that mm-hmm. that's a neat spot over there. Now, that side that he's on, fun fact, most people don't know this, but that area gets hit by more hurricanes than any place else on the earth. Oh, wow. I did not know. Yeah. That place is 
the Hurricane Alley. Yeah. And typically they're just barely hurricanes when they hit, but that, that place has the distinction of having been hit by more uh, hurricanes, I think basically of like category one uh, than anywhere else, uh, because typically that is the end path for most uh, hurricanes and tropical storms and whatever. Maybe, maybe it's a combination of hurricanes and tropical storms, but uh, yeah, it's uh, it's a neat place. He's he's further down from Lewisburg, but Lewisburg's a pretty famous place in Nova Scotia, but it's on that side. My uh, aunt and uncle lived up by there. I think Albert Bridge is a place up there where they lived. And uh, so I'd gone up there a couple times and been to Lewisburg. And I went to Lewisburg one day, I've been there a few times. And uh, it's often so foggy at Lewisburg that it's when you're, you, you park and then you wait around and you take one of these um, like tour, they bus you out to it kind of thing. Like you can't drive right up to it. Like it's controlled access. And, and in, in the bus, when you're, going on the bus they have like a recording of like what you're seeing because they have to drive at like 20 kilometers an hour and it kind of tells you a bit of a story as you're coming along and it actually says if it was clear today like in the pre-recording it's so <laughs> foggy there it says if you could see through the fog you know and we were there and it was like 30 degrees it was the nicest day they'd ever had there i think anyway so it's that, funny that, uh, just to add a little bit to that email too, um, as far as, you know, do we have a list or, of objects that we mentioned on the show? Not really. Um, we do uh, have a website, actualastronomy.com. We do post some show notes there. So you may find some things that, uh, uh, you know, not, not quite observing lists, but, but things to look at for the given month. So it is a little bit time sensitive. Yeah. Um, but if you are looking for lists, if you go to like rasc.ca or if you go to uh, the Astronomy League website or the Alpo website, yeah, basically any astronomy club, if you go to their website, you're likely going to find a number of lists there, um, whether they're pertinent to that local club or, or something that's more well-known, like the Messier list, you know, that type of stuff. Um, those, those can be other resources if you're looking for an observing project or list to work through. Perfect. Uh, do you want to read Sean's email? I do, except uh, just let me do this. I <laughs> hit a button I wasn't supposed to. Um, okay, I'm back. I'm back. You should have saw the button Shane showed me at the start of this. We <laughs> yeah. uh, so uh, this says, uh, hi, guys. Uh, never miss an episode. Really enjoy the show. Uh, after only being in this hobby for about a year and a half uh, and focusing primarily on astrophotography, I finally have an observing report. Uh, just had first light with two or sorry, with a new to me, six inch, uh, Skywatcher Maksudov F12 and an EQ five pro go-to mount, uh, first night out with it was disappointing. Uh, the mount would only slew an RA and made a terrible sound. And the views at the eyepiece were not the views I expected to see based on the great reviews I read from cloudy nights. I uh, was very worried. I purchased a couple of lemons. Uh, clouds rolled in, so I decided to come up with a troubleshooting plan for the next clear night. I uh, suspected the Mount Slew problem was a power issue, so I had a plan uh, for that and took to cloudy nights to learn more about Max. Uh, some people said the beauty thing about Max is that they don't require collimation, and others said that it wasn't necessarily true, so I researched on how to do a star test. Uh, next clear night, I had different uh, and better power pack, uh, started a three-star alignment, set it to slew to Aldebaran. It slewed perfectly and sounded great. 
When I centered on it, I put in a four millimeter eyepiece to try this star test thing out. Uh, it looked great with concentric circles and to my unaided eye, it seemed like it matched the picture of good optics. Uh, my conclusion was the poor views from the other night were due to either poor seeing or telescope acclimation. Uh, I carried on with the alignment and when it was done, I used the guided tour feature to, uh, just to test out the performance of the mount using an Orion, uh, 40 millimeter eyepiece, which made 45 times power. Uh, he said each target was bang on, uh, saw a bunch of open clusters like M44, 36, 37, 38, 45, uh, and in brackets with M45, uh, part of it. Um, these were nice, but probably look really good at a shorter focal length. Um, M42 was amazing. Then I slewed to M1. I had imaged this, uh, at 300 millimeters and it was almost a spec. So wasn't sure what to expect with this scope. Uh, I looked in the eyepiece and saw nothing, just stars. Uh, my skies here are pretty good in West Kelowna, Portal 4, and M1 was opposite the light dome of the city. But I thought uh, maybe there's too much light pollution. Uh, I knew it was there based on the mount performance, so I decided to try some tips I got from you guys. Uh, I sat with it a while uh, using averted vision and giving the scope a bit of a jiggle uh, and just tried to be patient. After a little bit, I thought I could maybe make something out, but I wasn't really sure. Slowly, an image faded in, and I was very sure I could see it and was surprised at how large it was. Uh, taking quite a bit of the field of view, I didn't see any detail, just the uh, shape of it. Very cool. Um, and then I love the, uh, the ending here. Um, I love the feeling I get when I see the photos I take, uh, but seeing this stuff with your own eye is such an incredible and different feeling. Uh, keep up the good work. Cheers, mm -hmm. Sean. So great email. Um, I, yeah. Like, um, yeah. with Max Sudovs, I've had a couple Max in the past five inch Max, and certainly the acclimation is a mm -hmm. big part of them. It does take some time. Um, you know, I would, you know, depending on the temperature swing, I would say probably at least an hour you'd want to, you know, have the telescope outside cooling down. Um, yep. And, uh, I, I, again, I love that ending of just, you know, photos are great. I love looking at photos, but there is just such a different feeling when you're looking at the object in the eyepiece. Yeah. Fresh photons. <laughs> there you go. Yeah. 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 yeah it was awesome. The original, the original article. Yeah. Yeah. I, I like that as well. Just, uh, the thing I really liked about Sean's email is just like the working through of, you know, getting, getting a scope and kind of just working out like how it works and everything like that. And, um, I think we've all, all been there, so couldn't really connect with, uh, with what he was saying. Yeah, absolutely. So we, uh, got an email from Mike. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Our, our, our local friend, Mike, that we observe with an awful lot. <laughs> yeah. So uh, we'll read Mike's email. So this is fun. I didn't reply to him. So I was like, we're going to read it on the show. Um, yeah. So he says that uh, Chris Chain Friday was a good night to do a binocular session. Yeah, I agree. I got up and, and did my binocular session uh, in in the morning. He said, uh, I observed some beautiful asterisms. Uh, I wanted to see Orion before it sets and did some observing from nine till 10. I looked first at the sword of Orion, makes a good sized asterism for his cannons, uh, which are 15 by 50 binoculars, which have about a four and a half degree field of view. And he saw many faint stars uh, nearby uh, in, uh, you know, uh, a large group 
of 10 to 12 stars. Yeah, there actually is a large group there. I forget the name of it. Um, so I'm on my list of things to try to see this winter. I'm going to have to send that to him. I'm going to have to dig it up. Anyway, Mike goes on to say, while focusing on the fainter stars, the nebula starts uh, to take shape. No color, of course, uh, as there's too much light pollution uh, from his home in the middle of the city. Um, the great nebula of Orion was now oriented to display symmetrical loops emanating from the trapezium. Um, the trapezium is a small grouping of stars, uh, like a, basically a star flesh is being birthed right at the middle of the uh, Orion Nebula. So that's, that's what he's looking at there, just, just for people listening. Um, let's see. Next, I observe some of Orion's bright stars from the fields around them. You observe Rigel as blue-white. Uh, and it's a good test if you're looking for double stars. Uh, and with a small telescope, if you can split Rigel's much fainter companion, which is less than 10 arc minutes away, sorry, 10 arc seconds away, uh, you may be able to see the fainter star at, uh, I think it's 11 degrees uh, or 11 arc seconds from Cirrus. Yeah, so just going back, I think, Shane, you mentioned this, doing that comparison between Rigel as, uh, as, as a good starting position. Uh, to split before trying to split uh, Cirrus. So they're they're about comparable, but of course Cirrus is lower down, so a little bit more challenging for us. Mm-hmm. Uh, Mike goes on to say near Bellatrix, uh, Delides 17, in a triangle of triangles, uh, so a little asterism there. Uh, Misa and Colander 69 to me looks like a safety pin uh, on a punk rocker. So I hadn't thought about that before. But, <laughs> That's but, a great yeah. description. <laughs> yeah, so... So Colander uh, 69 is the head of Orion, um, and it's this group of sort of three-ish bright stars, and then there's some, some fainter stars uh, in, and, in and around it. And um, that head of Orion was, was cataloged as a misty spot by some of the earlier astronomers, like Al-Sufi uh, documented this in uh, 964 AD in his book of fixed stars. And I think it was documented, maybe even as early as Ptolemy. Uh, Mike goes on to say, uh, due south... Of the head of Hydra is another big asterism uh, in a seven-degree field. Oh, and Mike also said uh, Colander 70, uh, which is the, the Orion belt of stars. He was looking at the curving uh, snake of stars, um, you know, that the kind of twists and turns in and amongst those. Pretty cool. Uh, higher in the sky, M35 near uh, Colander 89 in the foot of Gemini. That's a super rich area. Love that region of the sky. The, the jellyfish nebula is up there as, uh, as well. Um, over to Riga and the Leaping Minnow, which is Malat 31, and Stock 8, uh, which he sees as another little fish. I hadn't heard of Stock 8 being called a little fish before, do you? No, I haven't. Um, no, I'm curious to have another look of, of it now, actually. Yeah, yeah. Then he goes on to talk about uh, clusters M38, M36, and M37 are still pretty high up and easy to see uh, some details uh, in his uh 15 by 50s. Yeah, those are beautiful binoculars. Um, Mike goes on to say, I was surprised how these were and kept uh, coming back for, for another look. Yeah, those those will look pretty good in those binoculars. Uh, last on, he went to the Pleiades to finish the session, um, picked up the tripod and get out of the cold night air. Conditions were good at about zero degrees Celsius, little wind and clear. So he's in the center of the city. I'm kind of on, on the eastern edge. Shane is on the western edge. Mike is almost exactly between us. Mm-hmm. So I had too much wind, I think, really to be out for too long. And Mike, uh, I think Mike was sort of in the Goldilocks zone there. And I've even noticed because Snens have like dropped over to his house and um, just at different times of the year, I've been surprised. I think I mentioned this as well. I, I picked something up or dropped something off to you 
um, around this time last year. And I was shocked that it was, I think it was like five or six degrees warmer at your house than it was at mine one day. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It, it, it is kind of interesting, but um, you know, what are we probably about 10 or 15 kilometers apart as the, yeah. as the crow flies? Yeah. Something, something like that. Yeah. Anyway, Mike goes on to say, I uh, also saw a number of satellites, including a very big bright one overhead heading North and passing close to Beta Origa. And that's the only observing I've done since the past two weeks when I did a lunar session, uh, a day past full. Um, he said a favorite is the messy twin craters that are well seen at that time. Uh, still listening to all the podcasts. I hear my name up, my name come up sometimes, which is okay. I hope it's okay. <laughs> uh, looking forward to the next time we meet and stay up mostly in the grasslands. Uh, wishing all the best, Mike. Yeah, that's great. Yeah, it's really fun to get. Uh, an email from him. <laughs> yeah, hopefully it's okay because, yeah, kind of if if we're we're chatting with people that are observing, uh, that goes into the podcast, and because Mike is uh, is a frequent uh, observing companion of ours, that means that he's in this um, on a fairly regular basis. <laughs> so sorry yeah. about that. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, good stuff. All right, anything to add, Shane? No, that's it, Chris. All right. Well, thanks, Shane. Thanks, everybody, for listening. Be sure to subscribe in your podcatching software. And we're also on Patreon. Always happy to uh, take Patreon donations to help support the show. Thank you so much. Bye-bye, everybody. Thank you, everyone, for listening, and we hope you enjoyed the show. If you are interested in more information, would like to contact us, or if you would like to support the podcast, check out our website, actualastronomy.com. <laughs>